good afternoon. You're listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of the Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. Thank you for joining us today as he opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Nehemiah chapter 3, I'm going to read uh, a section of the, the first part of the chapter. Uh, we'll at least begin to consider the entire chapter tonight. We'll only make a, a start on that. Uh, the chapter has a, a repetitive theme to it in terms of the details uh, given regarding those who are building the wall. So to give us some sense of that, um, we'll read down to the end of verse number 14. So Nehemiah chapter 3 and the verse number 1, let's hear the word of God. Then Eliashib, the high priest, uh, rose up with his brethren, the priests, and they builded the sheep gate. They sanctified it and set up the doors of it, even unto the tower of Mia, they sanctified it unto the tower of Haniel. And next unto him builded the men of Jericho, and next to them builded Zachar, the son of Imri. But the fish gate did the sons of Hashanah build, who also laid the beams thereof, and set up the doors thereof, the locks thereof, and the bars thereof. And next unto them repaired Merimoth, the son of Urijah, the son of Koz. And next unto them repaired Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshishabiel. And next unto them repaired Zadok, the son of Bana. And next unto them the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles put not their necks to the work of their Lord. And moreover, the old gate repaired Jehoiada, the son of Passiah, and Meshulam, the son of Bezodeah. Uh, they laid the beams thereof, and set the doors thereof, and the locks thereof, and the bars thereof. And next unto them repaired uh, Melatiah, the Gibeonites, and Jadon, uh, the Meron, Nothite, and the men of Gibeon, and of Mizpah, unto the throne of the governor on this side the river. And next unto him repaired Uziel, the son of Harhaiah, of the goldsmiths. And next unto him also repaired Hananiah, the son of one of the apothecaries. And they fortified Jerusalem unto the broad wall. And next unto them repaired Rephiah, the son of Hur, the ruler of the half-part of Jerusalem. And next unto them repaired Jediah, the son of Harumath, even over against his house. And next unto him repaired Hattush, the son of Hashabniah, Makaijah, the son of Harim, and Hashub, the son of Pahathmoab, repaired the other piece in the tower of the furnaces. And next unto him repaired Shalom, the son of Halohesh, the ruler of the half part of Jerusalem, he and his daughters. In the valley gate repaired Hanun, and the inhabitants of uh, Zanoah, they built it, and set up the doors thereof, the locks thereof, and the bars thereof, and a thousand cubits on the wall unto the dung gate. But the dung gate repaired Micaiah, the son of Rechab, the ruler of part of Bethakirim, he built it, set up the doors thereof, the locks thereof, and the bars thereof. Amen. We'll just end reading there. And again, there is a, a continuation in the pattern regarding the names and their work in building these various gates uh, along the wall. And what is, uh, again, encouraging and remarkable as you come to this chapter 3 of Nehemiah is that the people are showing themselves to be good to their word. 
They have made it clear. Again, we saw verse 18 of chapter 2, let us rise up and build. They had said they were going to do something. And they actually get to doing that task. And they lose no time in getting the work commenced. It's always a temptation to put off a difficult task until a later time. There's an old Scottish proverb that goes like this, What may be done at any time will be done at no time. And so we read chapter 3 and we're impressed by the diligence and the speed with which the people go about the work. Although we shouldn't study a chapter, this chapter 3, which really is all about activity, without remembering the closing section of chapter 2. Chapter 3 only happens due to the work of God. Nehemiah, at the closing section of chapter 2, has taken the pains to emphasize the work of God in the entirety of the project. So chapter 3, it's all about busyness. It's all about labor and work. It's all about activity. But that activity rests upon what has been taught in the chapter 2. Nehemiah made it clear in verse number 12 of chapter 2 that it was God that put the work in Nehemiah's heart. He says there, Neither told I any man what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Uh, the work that begins in chapter 3 is coming in light of the initiation and the leadership of Nehemiah. But that work only comes because God put the work in Nehemiah's heart. Uh, again, it's, it's so precious to note those words in verse number 12 again of chapter 2, where it says, My God. We saw in chapter 1 that Nehemiah had a good heritage. I believe he had a, a godly father. But yet in due course, Nehemiah, he becomes the child of God personally. And not only is God a God, the God, but the God of the Bible is Nehemiah's God, my God. And those who have God as their God will have a burden for the work of God. And God does not save a soul without placing a burden for his work. I would say, I, would, I really believe with all of my soul, that if someone has no care for the work of God, it is more than likely the fact that they do not have a heart for God at all. And they may claim and boast much, but every single person born again in the Spirit of God has a desire and a burden for the work of God. And so it was for Nehemiah, it was his God had worked in his heart and given him a burden for the work, that burden that led to prayer and to responsible activity. Nehemiah also pointed out that the work was only going to progress because God would prosper it to be so. In verse 20, he says, the God of heaven, he will prosper us. In fact, again, we should take the time to note that as Nehemiah comes and encourages the people to work in chapter 2, he, he tells them of what God has done up to that point. In verse number 18, he tells them, Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me. In verse 8, again, he makes the point that King granted me according to the good hand of my God upon me. So I think what Nehemiah is doing here, he's, he's rounding the people up. He's told them it's a terribly difficult task. 
The city is in great distress. It lies waste. It's a very, very arduous and challenging task. But be encouraged. God has put a work in my heart, and up to now I can testify that God has given me success in the work. A reflection on God's past is a helpful encouragement to work for God in the future. Again, I had the, I had the joy today of spending some time going through a, a large bag of, of documents and, and pictures, going back right to the very beginning of the work here. And you go back and, and, and see the various meetings that were planned. You see the opposition initially that was to the very opening of the church in Newtown Square. Letters in the paper that were objecting to the Word of God going forward. And you're, uh, you're going back, well, this, this is incredible. It's all in a big bag. And it's all, if you like, just sitting there to be, to be read and considered. And it was a real joy. Though even the neighbors didn't want a church in their street, God didn't hinder to be so. And the work was established in Newtown Square. Uh, and you see how it opened in, in 1978 and, and, and the joy of, of the people of God as they, as they met around the Word. The good hand of God was upon this work. But the reflection of God's past work is only beneficial if we use that to motivate us to go forward for God in the future. You can look back and with thankfulness, but in the Word of God, it is always the case that God's past blessing motivates future risk-taking for Christ. Going forward for God, though the task may be challenging and difficult. It's always the way. When you think of the erection of the Ebenezer stone of, of Samuel's time, hitherto hath the Lord helped us. Um, one old commentary made the point that God's hitherto has henceforth caught up with it. And there is a sense when he says hitherto, he has sent up to now and also in the days to come, the Lord will help us. And Nehemiah knows that he's, he's pushing the people towards activity by reminding them of God's goodness in the days that have passed and also in the assurance of God's goodness in the days to come. Verse 20, he will prosper us. Faith and confidence. Those who fear men will not be active in the service of God. Those who fear work will not be active in the service of God. And so we see those, those who fear God, they are those who trust in God and will be diligent in activity for God, no matter who they are. It is with the Lord in mind that you can then come to verse number 1 of chapter 3. It is in light of what God has done and what God will do that you then read this third chapter and you go, it all makes sense. Because these people have been convinced of God's goodness, because they're serving God in faith, then of course they're going to be active. Whenever there is inactivity in God's house, it's always related to a absence of faith. There's a coldness of spirit. There's a, a lethargy in the work of God whenever there's a lack of faith in the work of God and the part of God. But when faith is strong, when God, when God is proclaimed and exalted as the great God of heaven and earth, then the people of God will indeed be diligent in their activity. 
And so let's uh, consider, at least begin to consider today, uh, some of these matters of chapter 3. And let me begin by uh, a word about the priority. Verse 1 makes the point that the chapter starts and finishes with the account of the sheep gate. Then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brethren the priests, and they builded the sheep gate. The chapter actually closes with the sheep gate. Look at verse number 32. And between the going up of the corner unto the sheep gate repaired the goldsmiths and the merchants. And this chapter is recording the activity of wall building that is going uh, its circumference of the city of Jerusalem. And thus, understandably, it starts at one point and ends at the same point. The account, of course, has to start somewhere. And it starts in the sheep gate. I don't get the sense that this was a matter of timing. The sheep gate happened when they came to first. I don't think that's it at all. It's not like dominoes in reverse. You know, the way you can play with dominoes and you can put them up in their ends and you push the first one down and the rest all cascade afterwards. This, this is not dominoes in reverse. You build one gate and the next one comes up and the next one comes up. A lot of these things were happening at the same time. They're all building at the same time. Therefore, Nehemiah is being particular in the account he gives. He's not describing the progress around the walls, starting from the old gate or the fish gate. He starts with the sheep gate. One Bible scholar says this, the sheep gate was so called because the sheep were led through it to the temple. And near it was the sheep market, where they were sold, and the sheep pool, where the sacrifice were washed. So the sheep gate was the place through which the sheep came in order to get to the temple, whereby they could be offered a sacrifice unto the living God. This gate is the only one that is described as being sanctified. Look at verse number one, the end of the verse. Even unto the tower of Mia they sanctified it. That's not said any other of the gates. Sanctified likely by sacrifice and prayer, the gates set apart, particularly set apart for a holy use. Now, I understand that the building of the entire wall was vital. You can't have a, uh, uh, have a walled city with a weak spot. It's all got to be fortified and carefully constructed. But yet, in the inspired scriptures, this gate is the one that is singled out. Chosen as the one to which all the rest of the work relates. Why so? You can accept there's some degree of, of inference and conjecture in this. But let me begin by reminding you that the walls here have the purpose of safety and defense. You have, again, that clear in verse number 8. And they fortified Jerusalem. The idea is of, of strengthening the city so that it would be safe and defended from its enemies. So the walls, they are for safety and defense. So the question is to be asked, well, what is the New Testament equivalent of walls? Walls around the city. Inside what are God's people safe? 
What are the things that keep out the enemy, if you like? What are the parameters within which the people of God are safe from harm? Well, I believe firmly it is the matter of doctrinal truth that is the safety of the people of God. Now, I've said that in the past in these early studies, but let me try to prove that to you now. In Revelation 21, you have the description of Jerusalem coming down, and it says there, And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Walls with foundations, the foundations of which were the apostles of the Lamb. Now keep that picture in mind and turn now to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 and the verse number 20. Well, let's go from verse number 19 of Ephesians 2. Now therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now we, again, we do believe in the importance of apostolic tradition. We don't believe in the Roman Catholic error of apostolic succession in the papal lineage. We don't believe that at all. But we believe apostolic succession occurs as the apostolic doctrine is taught to the church. And so the church can justifiably be said to be built upon the foundation of Bible truth summarized under the terms the apostles and prophets. It is the Word of God revealed through the Spirit of God upon which the church of God is built. That's their stability. That's their safety. And upon those apostolic foundations, we then read in Revelation 21 that the church walls are built. The walls are built upon apostolic foundations. And is it not reasonable to therefore say that the walls themselves are the walls of truth that arise out of these foundations? And so you'd expect to see elsewhere in the Word of God that the subject of truth is associated with safety. And you do see that. Just turn over a page in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4. Now the metaphor is different, I accept that. Again, I'm suggesting to you here that the, the walls of the church are walls of truth based upon apostolic foundations. And therefore you see that truth is the matter within which the people of God are safe. And then you have in verse, in verse number 14, you have the danger that the people of God face. They can be like people upon the sea, blown about, no stability, no safety, a ship that, that, has, that has no certain course. And a ship upon the sea that's being blown about is likely to become a shipwreck. And so what Paul is saying, he's, he's warning that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine. He's describing danger. And what is it that prevents that danger coming about? It is the gifts that the risen Christ gives to the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, those foundational offices giving way to the permanent office of the pastor-teacher. 
for the perfecting of the saints, verse number 12, for the work of the ministry. And part of the benefit of such pastoral teaching is the safety of the people of God that they would not be the ship upon the sea leading to shipwreck. And so I think we can say that there is clear testimony in the Word of God that the people of God are safe within the parameters of biblical truth. It is the truth of God that, that are the walls within which God's people are kept and preserved. It is Paul, of course, who instructs Timothy uh, later on, in fact, towards the close of Paul's ministry, he tells Timothy, preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they hate themselves, teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth. You preach the word, Timothy, because if you do not preach the word, they will take teachers to themselves who will lead to their eternal ruin. Safety is found in truth and in truth alone. And thus the importance of doctrinal clarity is reinforced in light of the reminder of the walls that are around the city of Jerusalem. In New Testament terms, if the truth is the inference that we can draw from this picture of the walls, then what does the sheep gate speak of? If the sheep gate has the priority, the priority in the building of these walls, what do we learn from that regarding the priority of doctrine in the house of God? Surely it is the priority of the doctrine of the atonement. The sheep gate is here through which the sheep entered on their way to the temple to be sacrificed. And I do believe that God is giving us a vivid picture of what really matters, and that is that we guard with all of our souls the biblical doctrine of the atonement. The sheep gate was necessary for the conveyance of the animals into the place of sacrifice. The atonement is the central and pinnacle truth of all of redemptive history. And thus we do find, of course, across the time of history that the doctrine of the atonement has been under great attack. It's attacked in those doctrines that are necessary for the atonement to be rightly valued. And thus there have been a multitude of attacks upon the person of Christ. Because when you get the person of Christ wrong, you will then err in respect to the doctrine of the atonement. He is, of course, the God-man, very God and very man. Wherefore, he is a suitable substitute and a sufficient substitute. He also himself likewise took part of the same, said Paul in Hebrews, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death. In the time of the early church, there were multiple attacks upon the humanity of Christ, but when you deny Christ's humanity, then he cannot be man's redeemer. If he is not truly man, then he cannot be man's substitute. If he's more than man in terms of his humanity, then he is not a suitable second Adam. He cannot redeem us from the curse of the law if he himself cannot bear the curses of man. And then, then, of course, uh, both in Bible times and the centuries to come, 
There are multiple attacks upon the deity of Christ. But it is in the union of humanity and deity that the atonement has its value. As the God-man can bear on his body in those hours of darkness the infinite wrath of God for the sins of his people. There is no ordinary man dying. It is man in union with God. And in that person, that glorious person, there is sufficiency to save us from all of our sins. And thus the price of hell is paid by the Son for us. As the Father's wrath is exhausted upon his Son. But you deny the person of Christ and you erode the sheep gate. You begin to, to, to attack you, you begin to attack the, the very pillar upon which the gate is going to stand. You begin to attack doctrine, and there's a, a gap in the wall through which error can come in and damage the people of God. I want you to see this. The truth is so vital. You, you cannot get bored or dull in the hearing of truth. It must continue to be fortified. And that we would not be wrong regarding the doctrine of the atonement. Thus the biblical doctrine of the atonement is not the moral influence theory, which is that Christ shows us how to love. And in his example of sacrificial love, we can then know what love is. But the biblical doctrine of the atonement is not the moral influence theory, but is the doctrine of penal substitution. Christ does show us love on the cross. But he shows us love on the cross by bearing the penalty of our sin. He pays the punishment for our sins so that we would not need to pay such a punishment. I understand this is a picture in Nehemiah. But I hope you appreciate that God is telling us something here about this sheep gate. It's mentioned first for a reason. It's the only one that's said to be sanctified. And I think when you begin to try to pull all the picture together, God is saying something, and I suggest to you, he is telling us all that we must rightly understand, value, and defend the doctrine of the atoning work of Christ Jesus. Such keeps us safe. Such gives us the joy of our security. The atonement removes from us the curse that we bear for our sins, whereby we need never hear the words, Depart ye cursed. Because we are safe, safe in Christ, who paid hell so that we need not pay the price of eternal hell. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Tuesday evening at 7 p.m. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We preach Christ crucified.